So if you will be seated and I will give us the context this morning of this morning's message. You know, all year long we've been talking about pursuing holiness. We don't want people to be misled by that uh, particular theme because holiness really is about revealing who Christ is in us. We have no holiness on our own. It's not a thing that we chase. It is a person that is shown in us, that person being Jesus Christ. Only God is holy. The Bible says that. And so when he says, be holy even as I am holy, what he's really talking about is removing the barriers so that people can see Jesus in us. Now, for the summer, I'm, we're turning kind of an exciting corner here. I am uh, going to uh, no longer preach, just be a commentator on the greatest holiness sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to begin uh, at a point in that sermon. Uh, we're going to come back and get the front part later on. Uh, but we're going to begin at a point in that sermon where Jesus is making a differentiation between what is traditionally seen as holiness and what real holiness is. He's contrasting that behavioral holiness with the deep, personal, high, broad, heart holiness that is so much more effective. Now, we live in a world of sight and sound. We live in a society of laws that govern our behavior. And because we live in this physical realm, we can easily conclude that the most important thing in the world is our action. We can easily come to the conclusion that if we can just get our action right, then nothing else really matters. But in the spiritual world, nothing could be further from the truth. There is, a, there is a world that lays beneath and beyond just the physical realm that is just as effective, just as causative as the physical realm. And so, therefore, we want to demonstrate this morning how important that world is, how real that world is and how we need to pay attention to that even before we need, we need to pay attention to the world of mere action. Watch this. So anyway, did you see what she was wearing? Oh, she looked like a clown. All she needed was a red rubber nose and the outfit would have been complete. Jane. No, I'm serious. Jane, I can't believe you. You're just so... Honest? No, not exactly. Come on. You know, you know that you were thinking the exact same thing when you saw her. Yeah, well, maybe I did, but it's one thing to think it, and it's a completely different story when you say it. Oh, brother. Hey, have another one of my cookies. No, thank you. Oh, June has a real weakness for them. Your sister? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen her lately? No. <sighs> Big as a barn. Jane, come on. No, I'm serious. The last time I was with her, it was everything I could do not to start singing, June is busting out all over. Stop. <laughs> Will you just stop oh, it? Stop what? Well, Jane, you're just so negative. I know. Isn't it fun? No, not really. Oh, come on. No, it, it really does. It bothers me to hear gossip. Oh, 
I know. You keep telling me someday I'm going to hurt somebody with my words. I'm serious. One of these days, somebody's going to get hurt. We're looking at a tableau of reality. Things of substance, of physical material. A table, a cup, a cookie. These things exist. They have dimension. Jane Curtis, age 36, also real. Flesh and blood, muscle and mind. In a moment, Jane will see what a separate line separates her thoughts and her spoken word from what she manufactures in her mind. Stay tuned. We will see what will happen to her when she enters the Twilight Zone. One of these days, someone's going to get hurt. Oh, you're so right. It just bothers me to hear gossip, that's all. Since when does it bother you to hear gossip? I mean, what are you, a little goody two-shoes? Little Miss Self-Righteous? You know, frankly, Sue, I am sick and tired of your oversensitive attitude about everything. Sue? Sue? Sue, what are you doing? <laughs> Sue, what's the matter? Sue? Sue! No! Dixie! Quiet! Shh! Um, oh my gosh, how did this happen? I need to call an ambulance. Okay, um, no, Dixie, quiet! Oh, I can't hear myself think what's the number for 911. Uh, Dixie, will you be quiet? Dixie, hush, you rotten four-legged! Dixie? Sue? Oh. Oh, what have I done? Oh, Sue, Dixie, you've always been my best friend. What should I do now? Oh, no. Mom? Kelly! <laughs> Poor Sue. She's had a rough day. What's there to eat? Oh, can I have a cookie? No. No, you can uh, have some fruit. Cookies for after supper. I hate fruit. Well, it's that or nothing. Forget it. I've got to get going anyway. Get going where? I'm going over to Emily's. Oh, no, you're not. Mom! No, uh-uh. You have homework to do. I'll do it when I get back. You'll do it now. Now go up to your room and stay there. Mom! <laughs> She's very tired. Now, go do your homework and there will be no arguments. Mom, that is not fair. Not fair? You want to hear about not fair, young lady? You're not fair. You, everything is about you. When's the last time you thought about me and what I might be going through? Hmm? And I am so sick of your back talk. And as for your little idiot friend, you would have to be a fool to want to go spend time with... <laughs> Kelly? Is it something I said? <laughs> Kelly, honey, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. Oh, sweetheart, I love you. Oh, what have I done? What have I done? A moment ago, a pot called a kettle black. A stone thrower broke the windows of his glass house. And the words from the lips of Jane Curtis in the meditation of her mind dropped the family dog. But who is someone who got hurt? Are they the ones pierced by our angry thoughts and words, or the one ensnared by the muse of discord, captive by the Twilight Zone?
Is there such a distance between attitude and action? Is there such a difference between thought and word? Not according to Scripture. Not according to God's Word. There is a part in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus does everything He can to take us to the importance of the realms of the unseen. You see, we who abide in the world of the seen find it all too easy to forget how determinative those things are. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.18 what should be a motto of Christians. For we look not to that which is seen, but to that which is unseen. For that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal. And so, as Jesus takes us to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, He has a goal in mind. And that goal is to let us not stop with behavioral goodness. Because Christian Christianity is not about behavioral modification. It's about deep, deep personal holiness. Now, if you have your scriptures with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And you will see, first of all, Jesus saying this, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now look at verse 20. He says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds, some of your versions say surpasses, that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now it says in Mark 1.22 that they were amazed in his, at his teaching, Jesus' teaching, because he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes were the ones that delineated all of the religious rules and regulations of the day. They wrote them down. They spoke them. They were the rule makers. They were the interpreters of the original commandments. They were the ones that said, this is how to live up to God's righteousness. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the ones who literally separated themselves from ordinary life in order to keep those rules. Now, you would think, would you not, that there could be no more two, holy, no two more holy groups in the entire nation than those dedicated to, to naming all the laws and keeping all the laws. But Jesus said there is something more important. As a matter of fact, it's so important that if you don't get it, look at what he says, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because heaven and being having heaven in you is not about behavior. It's not merely about behavior. Now Jesus goes on to begin to contrast some of our impressions of the commandments. And that's what I'm going to do with you for the next few weeks. I'm going to go through these contrasts so that you can understand completely what he's challenging us to because it is mind-boggling. Look at verse 21. Read it with me if you have your scriptures. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder 
and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But, now I want you to see something very, very clearly here. Jesus is not contradicting the law. Remember verse 17. That is not a, a but of contradiction. That is, a, that is a, a contrast conjunction. In other words, he's saying, but don't stop there. Don't stop with that. Go further with me. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now stop right there and let me show you something. I want to show you this word for anger. You know, there are a couple of pretty strong words for anger in Greek. One is thumos. Thumos is the, is the kind of anger that, that um, is, is kind of like fire in a little uh, gathering of dried straw. It flares up very quickly, and then it goes back down just as quickly. That is a very normal kind of anger. All of us have that kind of anger. Uh, when something surprises us, when something distresses us, when something distracts us, our first reaction is, boom, uh, you know? When somebody cuts, you, cuts in on you in traffic, that, that's the anger that comes up. When, when a beeper or a cell phone goes off in worship, that's, that's the anger. They go, what is, oh, come on, you know? But then you go, ah, oh, okay, you know? If you're thinking about that beeper going off several hours later, you have a bigger problem than you know. Because you have, watch this, the other kind of anger. And that, that's the word, this is the word that is used here, the orge kind of anger. Orge, this is, the base word is orge, and it means the kind of anger that just smolders. It doesn't rise up fast and go down fast. It just smolders. It's like, it's like um, um, embers that continue to smolder. This is the kind of anger that many people entertain when it returns to them. They don't close it out of their mind. They get mad at a person and maybe unconsciously kind of nurse that anger because it makes them feel better or it reminds them that some people have done wrong or, or for some reason there is some sort of pleasure in the entertainment of that anger. And so they'll think about it from time to time and they'll make it mad and it just kind of continues to go. Now Jesus is saying if you have that kind of anger, if you permit that kind of anger in your life that's just as bad as doing something wrong behaviorally. And you're, guilt, you, you're liable before a court. Now look at what else he says, because this escalates. It says, And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Now I want you to see the escalation here. First of all, we've escalated courts, haven't we? We haven't gone just to a court. Now we've gone to the high court, the Sanhedrin, the court of appeals. But also, we've escalated because we have gone from being angry to making an accusation. Racha is Aramaic for fool. But it, is, it, it means uh, empty-headedness. Uh, it, it would be our word for stupid or idiot, okay? It's, it's calling somebody, it's accusing somebody of being thoughtless and dull mentally. Now, go on with me, because it is not finished in its escalation yet. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The word literally here means shall be liable to hell. Now, what just happened here? First of all, I want you to see what that word is. 
Euphou in Greek is more, and it means not now a intellectual accusation, now it means a moral accusation. In other words, what you've done is you've just finished with the, well, he's an idiot, he just doesn't know any better, and gone on to, this guy is a bad person. This guy is a bad character. Now, why in the world would Jesus say that by, by saying that, we are liable to hell? Why does, it get, why does it get that far? Well, who is the accuser of men? It says this in Revelation chapter 12. The accuser of men is Satan. He is the accuser. And where is he at as he accuses men? He accuses men night and day at the throne, saying to God, these are bad characters. These are bad characters. Where is Satan bound for? Hell. When you say to someone else, when you think in your mind someone else is a bad character, when you take on the role of accusing the brethren, what role have you just taken on? Satan. Jesus is saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Jesus is saying, first of all, you've got to realize the gravity of sin, the depth of sin. St. Anselm once said this. He says, you have not considered the heaviness of sin. And most of us stand exactly there. We have not considered the heaviness of sin. You know, most of us think of ourselves as people who try to keep order. Most of us think of ourselves as people who try to make the world a little better and people who are on the good side. But there is inside of us, in our original sin, a realm of destruction that we need to consider that usually comes out in our anger. One of Paul Harvey's stories tells about a young Raja in, in India. The year was 1820 when he came to his throne. This was one of the few provinces in India that was not under British rule at the time. And this Young Raja's older brother was slated to become the Raja, but, but he died somehow, mysteriously. And so this young Raja came to the throne. And as he came to the throne, he was insecure enough in his power to become kind of a law and order guy. He wanted at all cost to maintain the order of the kingdom for the sake of its citizens. And so he built up the treasure and he built up the army so that he could safeguard the citizenry. Well, he only had one continuing problem. That was, at night, there was a band of marauders that would go and, and raid villages and, and, and kill the people there. There was a band, literally, literally the, the English translation is for, the, for that band is thugs. That was the, their name. And he was so angry, and he continued to try to catch those people and never could, never could catch them. And it went on for years and years. And, and what he built up during the day seemed to be torn down and stolen during the night. And it happened all his reign because the very few people who knew who the leader of those marauders was were too afraid to say. And they were too afraid to say because the leader was the Raja himself. There was a Jekyll Hyde thing going on. And whatever he built up during the day, he tore down at night. Let me ask you something very personally. Do some of you tear down the very things you're trying to build up? 
Do some of you want to be an encourager of people, but you find yourself in your mind every night angry with them, accusing them, sabotaging the very thing you mean to do? Well, that's what Jesus saw. And Jesus said, be careful of that. Be careful of that. That is a characteristic of us all. And so we have to, we have to, to be careful that there's not a voice in us that would destroy the very thing we want to build up. Now, go on and read another verse with me. Two other verses. It says in verse 23, If, you, if therefore you present... I'm sorry, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, I want to tell you a couple of things about this. First of all, I want you to notice that our relationship with God is the alpha and the omega of our reconciliation with our brother. I hear people say sometimes, you know what, I can, I can be reconciled with my brother without having to have a relationship with God. No, you never will. Human anger will always get in the way. There'll always be flesh there. I hear some people saying, you know what, if it means becoming a Christian, and, and by becoming a Christian, I've got to forgive this guy, I'm never going to become a Christian. Boy, you have just punished yourself eternally. That is not worth that. And I'll show you in a little while why it's not. But here's what, the, here's what Scripture says. Jesus is saying, look, at the altar, you remember who you are. And then you go and you become who you are in Jesus Christ. And then you go back. God is the beginning and the end, the cause and the effect of our reconciliation. But I want you to see what he's just done here so that we can, we can do exactly what he says. In the Greek, the previous verses have been, when, we, when he talks about uh, you, it's been in the plural form. That is, all of us have this characteristic. You all. But in this verse, when he says, if you, it's in the singular. You know what he's just done? He's just saying, I don't want you to compare yourself to anybody anymore. I want you to do a personal inventory right now. If you, when you present your gift of, your gift to the, at, at the offer, of offering into the, into the worship setting, I want you to do a survey. Now let's just pause for a moment and do that right now. How many of us have done a survey recently of how often we get angry? And how much a part of anger our life really is? How much, how much of, of, of our life does anger really have? What, what quantity? How often do we use it in order to perform our daily tasks? I think that if we really did a survey we would be surprised at how often we are angry every day. Have you noticed the growth of the ticked-off column in the paper? I don't mean just the numbers. I mean it used to be just in the local and state section. And then I noticed there was a ticked-off section in the sports section. And then I noticed there's a ticked-off section in the, in the high school rave section. Why the growth of this? Because people love to identify with anger. They look and they say, boy, that makes me mad too. And there's something about, there's something about, there's something almost relieving 
about knowing how many people are angry, and I'm glad other people are angry about this. But you know what? That's a trap. That's a trap. First of all, it's a trap to assume that if we express our anger, our anger will lessen. When I was going through my doctoral studies, um, I, uh, a lot of it was in psychology, and, the, and the, the, the thought of the day was along the line of a catharsis. That is, if you express your anger and get it all out, you'll be relieved of that anger. I want to tell you nothing could be further from the truth. Because the more you express your anger, the angrier you get. That's the facts. Now, I'm not saying don't face your anger. I'm not saying don't, don't see where your anger is or find a constructive way to deal with your anger. But exploding in anger simply promotes anger. It fosters anger. And so, therefore, we need to do a survey of just how angry and how often we are angry. You know, there are a number of people who are angry all day long because that's how they get things accomplished. There are a number of people among us who, are, who have righteous anger, and they say to themselves, you know, unless somebody gets mad about this, nothing's going to get done. And unless I get mad enough, I'm not going to do anything. So therefore, anger works to the good. I want to show you a scripture right now that will forever correct that assumption. If you have your scriptures with me, turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. While you're turning there, and I hope you memorize this, while you're turning there, I know a number of Christians who believe that sin is rooted out by anger. You know, if we just get mad enough about all these sin joints in our community, if we just get righteously uh, uh, angry about them, then we're going to make our community better. Look at what the Word says. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Listen to me very carefully. You will never do anything lasting for the kingdom while you're angry. You will never help God by being angry. You will never become spiritually more powerful in your anger. It works just the opposite. As you love, you become more powerful. As you are calm, you become more powerful. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Never has, never will. So we need to do, we need to do this little inventory in here. Even for, We need to do it for national things. I don't know how many of you are angry about all of the, all of the discoveries right now about the uh, leaders of the armed forces being caught in adulterous relationships, both sexes, you know, and you get all upset about that, and your first reaction is to just call them all moral reprobates. You know what? You can't go there. The Bible says you can't go there. That's calling them mores. It's calling them fools. It's accusing their character. You can't go there. Now, God can go there. You can't go there. I don't know how many of you have written off President Clinton because it's Jones thing first, it was a Flowers thing, then it's the Jones thing. And I, you know, well, that guy's a moral reprobate. You just written him off. You can't go there. You cannot go there because that puts you on the side of Satan. The Bible says what you can do for your president is pray for him. What you can do for the armed forces is pray for him. You cannot go there in your attitude. 
because we can't have that kind of smolder, smoldering character assassination anger or we're on the same side as Satan is. You see? And we've got, to do, we've got to see the rough places in our lives where that anger will just pop up like that. We weren't even, a, we weren't even aware it was there. The other day, one of the guys went down to pick somebody up at the airport and uh, stopped, at, uh, stopped out in front of the arriving plane's flight or something like that, just looking for the person, you know. And he says, this person with this, that, that was a, in this uniform comes coming out here, you can't park here, you can't park here. And, and, and I said, well, what'd you say? And, and, and he said, well, I just said, okay, okay. <laughs> Can we be a little bit nicer about this? I thought, why be so mad about this, you know? And I said, what happened? He said, well, the veins got, you know, he's just gotten mad. He sort of kept yelling. And I could not believe my reaction. This is my reaction. Look, let me teach you a lesson here. Give a guy a uniform. Now, that's not a good reaction. That's not good. In the first place, there are so many military and police people that go here that are wonderful people. I should know better than that. But my first reaction is probably some residue of anger for the last time I got pulled over. <laughs> There's probably something hiding in there. But my first, my first thing was to accuse everybody of, 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 that has a uniform and a badge of having this authoritarian complex. Now that was dumb, wasn't it? But I've got to recognize that's in me. And every time that's in me, I can't let that reside there anymore. I've got to get that out of me. Now let me show you why. Read these next verses with me. It says this. It says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law. That's talking about keeping short accounts. Anytime you recognize there's a dispute, boom, you've got to address that right then. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now obviously we understand that this now is not just talking about literal prison. This is talking about both emotional prison and spiritual prison. Let me just, before I go any further, let me just pose to you this question. When you are really angry with someone, who is the prisoner? You think that person is the prisoner? That person goes about their lives, their normal lives. They're not even thinking about you. You're sitting home fuming. You're sitting home suffering. You're sitting home giving yourself all kinds of ulcers. You're giving yourself all kinds of problems. I read in the, in the, in the Harvard Business Review a couple of uh, years ago that 60 to 90% of the symptoms that are gathered in medical offices in this country are traceable to stress. 60 to 90 percent. Do you think you being angry with another person was, does one thing to them? Only on very rare occasions. Is that, so listen, when you're angry, you're the prisoner. Who's Jesus trying to set free here? You. Jesus is trying to say, Look, this is not a good bet. This isn't, you can't let these things smolder. Turn with me if you have your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, real quickly. It's a very important verse. It starts out like this. It says, be angry, but sin not. What, is, what, is, what does scripture recognize? The scripture recognizes we're always going to have things that make us angry. 
You know, and what, you know what, emotions are okay. Emotions are okay. Emotions are normal. Emotions are natural. But there has to come a time when you recognize those emotions and you don't let them proceed into sin. Now, is it just talking about behavior? No. It's talking about this continuing, smoldering anger. That's, we've just learned that's just as much a sin as our behavior. And so Paul says this, be angry, but sin not. And then it tells us how. How do you do that? Don't let the sun go down on your anger, it says. It says the same thing Jesus is saying when he says, make friends quickly with your opponents. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know, there's an old Latin proverb that I love. And it says this, don't take your opponents to bed with you. I love that. How many of us go to bed at night and we think of people that we're angry at? You know what you've just done? You've taken your enemy to bed with you. That's too private a place. That's too personal a place to let them reside. Don't take your opponents to bed with you. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Keep short accounts. There are some of you today that need to call somebody up and you need to say, you know what, I'm sorry. I've been thinking bad thoughts and I've been angry about something, but that's not your problem, this is my problem. And I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to see how all of this comes out in court. <laughs> you know, when, when somebody has you by the nape of the neck, and this, I've prayed that the Holy Spirit, anytime I get this kind of anger, would grab me by the nape of the neck. Would, I, have this kind of, I have this kind of imagery. Some of you say, well, how in the world would you, why in the world would you go to court with your opponent? Well, back at that time, uh, um, they had a custom uh, that, that was, and the Greek word for it is apagage, and, and, and it means that you could literally, when you saw somebody doing an offense, you could grab them by the nape of the neck and haul them into court, literally. It's like, remember the old uh, uh, Andy Griffith, Barney Fife uh, episodes where Gomer was making citizen's arrests, you know? It's literally a citizen's arrest deal, you know? And you can grab them and take them. And the Bible says, you know what? When you are being drugged into court, you had better make friends quickly with whoever's doing the dragging. It doesn't say who's right and wrong. It doesn't say who's right. The Bible just says don't live with that kind of stuff. That's not the stuff of life. That's not something you want to mess with. And so when the Holy Spirit grabs me by the nape of the neck, man, I make friends quickly because I don't want to live with it. Life's more than anger. Now watch this. this is, uh, and this will be my last, my last point here. The character of Christ, the character of grace that is our holiness, is not only very sensitive to any kind of discord, but it's very sensitive to what the healing of that discord can do, what literally the laying down of that anger can do. This year, this month, is the 50th anniversary of a very important national move that the United States did. Fifty years ago, on June 5th, Secretary of State George Marshall climbed into the podium and at the Harvard University's commencement address gave what would be the speech that would eventuate into what was called the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was a plan that arose after World War II that said the United States would be glad to help finance 
and would be glad to support morally the European continent that was devastated by the war, watch this, including Germany. Now, the only nation that did not go in to that agreement was communist Russia. Now, watch what happened. When the United States said that, when the United States said, even though you caused the war, we will help rebuild your nations. We will loan you the money it takes. What happened was that as their economies grew stronger, our economy grew stronger. And 50 years later, the only economy that has absolutely gone down the toilet is the one who was too suspicious and too selfish and too unforgiven to get in on that agreement. Meanwhile, the people who initiated that reconciliation, the people who initiated that giving, is the strongest nation in the world economically. I want to tell you something. That not only works for nations. That works for people. Give. Even when it's not your turn. Forgive. Even when you don't have to. Love and benefit. Even when you could find an excuse, a legitimate excuse, to stay angry. And you will watch your world prosper. Pray with me. God, thank you for the leadership of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he resides in our lives and that his character is our character and that we can act on the strength of his character. And we ask you, Lord, to make us like Jesus. When we have anger, to lay it down. And when we have love, to give it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.